it's all about a back and forth. It's never about one way. And I think we need to stop this this thing that oh, black people, Asian people do not engage with nature. No, 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 no. It's it's we're not listening. We're not giving space to those voices. Even here in Bristol, for a family who came here in the 50s or the 60s to have maybe just a little kitchen patch. It wasn't uncommon to have that type of thing. So people would still, to this day, do that type of thing. And I think because we don't see it as probably, oh, this is environmentally friendly and sustainable, it isn't integrated into the movements. But the other issue is definitely structural in that the green movement, the established movement, does not look into these communities to see what they are doing, what can they learn from them? Welcome to Wanna Be Greener with me, Harriet Robinson. This is the podcast that pulls apart eco topics and issues and makes them easier to understand and implement within your own life. So, as a person who blogs about the environment, who talks about it a lot, who does a podcast on it, I I'm acutely aware of the fact that most of the people that I communicate with, that follow me, that I follow, are white, middle class, and that the movement is kind of stuck within this one voice. And so for a while, I've been trying to actively take steps to change my outlook and the content that I consume to make sure it's a lot more diverse than than it currently is. And actually, this was recorded a few weeks ago before um, the situation in America really blew up. And actually, that's just magnified things a million times more. So I feel like today's podcast is a super important one and one where I'm educating myself as much as I'm educating you. So I have an awesome guest today called Zakia McKenzie, who I know from Bristol, where I was living before I moved to New Zealand. Zakia is a journalist, an academic and emerging nature writer. She was one of two women chosen as Forestry England's first ever writers in residence last year. She's passionate about forests and nature and believes it's a space for everyone, using her platform to demonstrate the need for more open and inclusive environmental conversations. So we talk about the pioneering programme she helped launch in Bristol in the UK called Green and Black, or now called Black and Green, which helped the sustainable action in the city to include more BAME voices. We also talk about Zakia's upbringing in Jamaica and how that influenced her lifestyle and her love for the environment. How sustainable living is not just about the visible movement and what we can do to ensure our own eco outlook is inclusive and that we're not just hearing but communicating with and given a platform to all voices. This conversation was fun, informative, enlightening and really helped me to understand more about my responsibility as someone with privileges. So as I said, this episode was recorded a few weeks ago when lockdown was much stricter in the UK. So I wanted to find out how Zakia was coping, especially as somebody who likes to spend a lot of time outdoors. Also, it's just kind of nice to catch up because it can feel you can feel kind of disconnected from each other when one is speaking in the morning in the other one in the evening <laughs> i know you're like in the future in another world ah things are fine here i mean you know locally my street my neighborhood we're kind of all taking care of each other looking out for each other so we are well i mean but i haven't been anywhere else since it all started i have not been within like i don't think i've been further than like 10 minutes away from my own home to do anything 
have to go to the shops or anything. So I have, I have stayed very local. You know, I might go for a walk around here, but I, you know, I don't drive, so I, I can't really get out anyways if I needed to. I've stayed very local. I've done all my shopping kind of local, except for like, you know, big delivery that I've gotten. Um, mm. But people are, we're fine here. You know, it, it's really scary outside the front door. But I think for a lot of us, once we're inside, we're okay. We speak to our neighbors across the fences and, you know, <laughs> I, mm. but I know that it's it's not the same for, for everybody. So I just happen to be in this position. Um, you know, I'm just so glad I'm, I actually moved. Probably almost a year ago, and I, I was in a really tiny flat, and then I started renting from my friends now. So I actually have a garden, and I'm I'm so grateful. I think every single morning, you know, I said I'm so grateful that we've moved here. Every night when I go to bed, I'm like I'm so thankful that we actually have us a, a, a little bit of outdoor space to do some gardening and exercise and soak up the sun, and then you know talk to my neighbors over the fence. It's it's really good. I guess so. You haven't really been able to kind of explore nature really and get out to forests and woods so much, or or have you been able to? No, not. A, I mean, ex- I definitely have explored nature, but it's very locally and just kind of in the confines. You know, probably even more within the confines of the little space that I have here, where there are actually, a, you know, found out there are a lot, a lot of different things growing. Um, but yeah, no, you know, I haven't. I was thinking last night, OMG, I have this membership uh, to to Western Bird Forest and it's going to go to waste this year. You know, I've only been once so far before all of this happened. So I haven't actually, yeah, I haven't been out. I mean, they're closed anyway. The the, the forest, the nature reserves, the parks, they, they've been closed as well. So I wouldn't have been able to get in. Mm. So what? I wanted to talk to you because we kind of know each other from Bristol. I know you do the Green and Black project, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the most exciting thing that I know about is that you became um, a writer in residence for Forestry England last year. Um, I think the f- one of the first ones, is that right? Yeah, there were two of us and we, we are the first. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? Because I know you're a nature writer anyway, but, but how did that happen and kind of what did it? involve the funny thing is I did not consider myself a nature writer before I think I didn't even know it was a thing you know it's it was one of these things I think I operated outside of so I didn't know it was a thing like a real thing I probably had heard of you know I knew of course people would have been writing about nature and and travel you know I was probably more aware of travel writing as a genre um, but I was kind of very fresh and new to nature writing. But as you said, nature is just a thing I wrote about. I am a writer who writes about things that she loves, and one of them happened to be nature. And so I saw this, um, one of my coworkers at the time actually posted it. I think it must have been on Twitter, posted the call for applications. And I thought maybe I should apply because I'm, so I'm, still in the middle of a PhD and at the time I was about to quit the PhD because I thought I'm such a bad writer there's no point trying to write a you know 100,000 word documents and so I think I did it for almost like a morale boost almost like a kind of self-confidence boost and that was just even in the application it was just even writing the piece that I needed to write for the application I was I was satisfied I was actually content once I had done that piece, because then I felt, okay, I'm I'm not a bad writer. It's probably I'm not engaging with, you know, what I was dealing with. And so it was pretty surprising when I got it. It wasn't surprising when I got a call for the interview. It was surprising when I went to the interview and heard that there were 
almost a thousand applications and I was shortlisted. So I think, yeah, that was kind of like the wait, what moments? Because, uh, (laughs) you know, it was over a thousand people across the UK. I mean, almost a thousand people across the UK. And, and I was one of six to be shortlisted. And I thought at that moment, I was like, okay, it's getting real, (laughs) you know? And there was a sort of naivety there too, because I think I didn't actually understand the, the kind of clout, the kind of uh, how big Forestry England was, you know, at the time. Tra- yeah. Transitioning from the Forestry Commission to which co- which covered all of the UK, you know, while my residency now was just England, um, the Forestry Commission split to the different countries. And so I think those two things worked for me. The fact that there was a bunch of naivety, but there was also kind of a thing where I needed a sort of self-fulfillment to remember that I could do something like this. And I think that worked for me. Yeah. And so that's that's how I got it. <laughs> it's so cool. But so for an outsider, what did you actually have to do? Like, obviously, you have to write stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the fun part. It was, it was going all across different forests. I think I went to at least seven forests and some I went to more than one across um, England and kind of reflected on it, you know, wrote and reflected on it. And I had no clue, you know, I had a plan of what I was going to write. But actually, when I went in, there were so many other things that I just didn't bank on um, the experiences, having those experiences and then then being able to reflect on it. And again, you know, so I didn't grow up in England. I was born here, but I didn't grow up here. And so this is why I could have kind of missed the whole importance of um, an organization like Forestry England. This is why, you know, I, I would have not, a lot of the places I went to, I had never been to that part of England before. So for me, it was this whole adventure of actually um, discovering the country, understanding the geography of the country and the landscape of different parts of the country. Um, and yeah, and so Forestry England, you know, they, they, they control most of the forests. I don't want to say control as if it's, you know, <laughs> but they, they care for, Look right? After, They're yeah. the stewards of, right? They are the stewards of um, majority of the forest land in the country, which they're, they're actually a, a government body, but, you know, they operate for the environment. And so I think I, nearly all of that was lost on me. I just applied, Harriet. I really just applied because I needed to write something <laughs> and it went through and I was like, okay, I guess I have to be serious about this now because here I am, right, in residence. And what what was it like then? Because it, it's over now, right? Because it was a year. So it must have, has it just come to an end? Yeah. It, um, so January, about February started last year. Not at the very beginning of the year though, yeah. So it must have been amazing. You're basically like hanging out in nature and writing about it, which is what, two of your favourite things? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like I couldn't ask for anything better. It's like give me somewhere <laughs> to sit on the trees and then write about it. There's, there's absolutely nothing else I could have kind of wanted to do. <laughs> and you mentioned that you didn't grow up in the UK and England. So you grew up in Jamaica, right? Yep. And where did that kind of connection to nature come from? Did you feel like you spent more time in nature while you were there than in England? Or what, what's, what's it like there? Um, yeah, I suppose in a way, yes, yeah, for sure. And not that I spent more time there. I think it was more accessible in a way to okay. where I was in Jamaica and my family. And, and, I, and I only mean accessible because it is a tropical country. So you, you spend a lot of your time outdoors anyway. 
you mm. do a lot of things outdoors and, and in that way it's accessible i don't even mean in the like you know political context which i'm sure we'll talk about later but it's just access that you lived in a place that when you woke up in the morning you stepped outside you were among trees um, and this is even in the city so i grew up in capital city in kingston mm. and it was a place where you know I had mango trees in my backyard, um, you know, the sour sap tree, just kind of all the things that we, you know, we grew up with them as regular. I know. <laughs> but exactly, that's the thing. We grew up, grew up with them without even a second thought to think this is nature. You know, it was just a part of the landscape. It was just a part of living that these things were there. And if you woke up in the morning and you looked on a tree and saw that your sweet sap and we also had the sour sap were ripe, You'd pick it in the morning and go and make your breakfast juice, right? And it was it was just how you lived because it was there and it wasn't going to go to waste and you needed, wanted to feed ourselves and we grew up with these things. And mm-hmm. I mean, I spent a lot of time in between. I uh, lived in, in town, in, you know, in Jamaica, we have what we call country and town. Town being the city, the, the urban area and country being the rural area, just like anywhere else. But I spent a lot of my weekends and my holidays in country, um, at my grandmother's lives in rural Jamaica and so I had I had definitely had the mix and it's probably something a lot of town kids in Jamaica no longer have is the connection to the countryside with family members still living there and so that was I think um at least in my little friend circle that was a unique experience for for me to have that and many many of my friends came to country with me to have that experience as well. Mm. You kind of mentioned the accessibility there and I know it's something that you've talked about a lot um, at various times. When when did you start realising that a lot of people didn't feel quite so connected to to nature and natural areas? Is it something you've always been aware of, that you were kind of unique in that? Yeah, I think because, yeah, I think so for sure, because I grew up in Jamaica as what I call an uptown girl, which is, you know, not working class, a middle class kind of lifestyle. And among this group of friends, like most of my friends did not have that connection to the countryside anymore. A lot of my friends have come from families that are working class families that have kind of their one generation out of the ghetto, right? So a lot Mm. of my friends, they still, their, their family home is in the ghetto. The difference for me is that my family home is in the countryside. And so that is what in, in herb. So I think what happened here is that because my, you know, my family did not, my parents and my grandparents left Jamaica came to England, I think and only one parent is Jamaican, the other one is from Guyana. But I think because of that, you know, we stayed, the rest of us stayed in the countryside and we didn't have this kind of movement to the urban area as it seems like most of my other friends have, where their families left the countryside, moved to the urban areas and lived in kind of the slums, the ghetto. And then by the time my generation came, they were outside of, you know, the, the families had kind of progressed to move out of the ghetto, or at least some of them had moved out of the ghetto. So these would have been my parents' generation. So my friends' parents, most of them by by now had moved out of the ghetto areas and were living kind of uh, upper working class or, or lower middle class lives. Whereas mm. for me, I think because we had that gap of not staying in Jamaica and not moving from rural to city life in, you know, at the time when there was this big rush towards the city, most of my family stayed in the country, so we I still had that connection. And I noticed then, you know, when I was living there, that when I came back on the weekends and spoke about all the fun I had in the country, it was not something that my friends did because they didn't have family members still in the countryside. 
and it's I'm sure it's different, uh, you know, all across the board. But for my group of friends, my kind of class, and it was a big group of friends too. It was an anomaly. There were very few of us that still had that connection to the countryside, but it doesn't mean we didn't have a connection to nature. Because again, as we say, we just kind of grew up in a place where we didn't even think about it. It wasn't a second thought. You know, some of us would live in a place where, and it would still be in, in, in the urban area, maybe just right out on the outskirts, but still lived in places where there were like rivers flowing, a stream flowing through. Or, you know, there would be a, um, you know, if you live closer to the hills, there would be coffee coffee growing. Um, you know, banana trees everywhere, fruit trees everywhere, you know, breadfruit trees everywhere. And you just grew up knowing these things and knowing that they were useful and that we needed to protect that, take care of them because they fed us and filled our homes with furniture or, you know, whatever it was. We just knew that these were, but, but we also didn't give it a second thought. And so for me, when I came here, you know, when I moved back to England um, and only about five years ago, you know, I think there for me it was very it was stark it was a stark revelation to me that whether or not a child in jamaica grows up in this in country or town they have a much better appreciation a natural appreciation for the environment because it is something that is entwined within their existence whereas in in places like this in when you come to a big a big country and a big city you know that connection is often lost and so children here they do not grow up with what we grew up with. You know, you have to almost bring them to nature. You know, it's a concept that they even like because as humans ourselves, we are nature and there's so much around us anyway. But you almost have to pinpoint and pick these things and make it a, a an activity to say, okay, we are going to engage with nature. Uh, we're going to commune with nature. Now we're going to do these things with nature and the environment. Um, and yeah, and I think that was a stark revelation to me here is that if you wanted that, you needed to go somewhere to do it. You know, the city farms, you yeah, needed, you need to find it. You know, you had to go out and find it. And again, if you're not driving, um, you know, like me, I don't drive. So it was almost like, OK, how do I get to those places unless I rope in some of my family members for us to go get a friend to go rent a car? You know, because a, a lot of these places aren't on the bus routes or the train routes either. So I think for me, that was when I was like, okay, accessibility of environment, nature spaces in a country like this, we have to think a bit further. It has to kind of be organized in a way to to begin with, I think. And I guess the reason we're talking about this is we're talking about kind of inclusivity and especially like cultural divides. And I mean, kind of ironic in a way, because you're saying, actually, uh, as a Jamaican, you have more somebody who's lived in Jamaica anyway sorry you've had you have more kind of connection naturally with nature yet we're seeing an issue that the environmental conversation is not inclusive of you know BAME mm-hmm. black and minority ethnic communities within the UK or within like mm-hmm. the western world why why is that why do you think that is I mean it, you, it's absolutely right you know and it's the, the problem is twofold. There's a community problem, of course. You know, we cannot absolve my, I cannot absolve my community and communities like mine from taking the initiative as well. But there's a bigger structural problem that you just, you just hit on too. So as, you know, the conversation 
if there is a movement, you know, and I'm putting all these things in kind of like uh, quotes, the conversation and the movement in these countries are very white and middle class. It does not mean that rest of the people in the country are not engaging with the issues. I think the difference is we're probably not looking at it through the same lens and we're probably not, with, again, I think a lot of people still don't see it as, oh, this is environmentally friendly. They're just doing things that came, you know, that, that they grew up with. Mm. So it, was, it wasn't uncommon for, um, you know, even here in Bristol, for a family who came here in the 50s or the 60s to have maybe just a little uh, kitchen patch. Maybe they were just growing some herbs, you know, some, some thyme or, you know, maybe. So it wasn't uncommon for to have that type of thing yeah. because you were in a country where they didn't necessarily at that time have all the spices and the herbs and the things you cooked with for your cuisine. So people would still, to this day, do that type of thing. And I think because we don't see it as probably, oh, this is environmentally friendly and sustainable, it isn't integrated into the movements, right? Or the movement, as, as it is a mo green movement. But the other issue is definitely structural in that the green movement, the established movement, does not look into these communities to see what they are doing, what can they learn from them. And, and you, you, you're absolutely right. It, it is the irony that people, a lot of immigrants who come from these countries live that way. You know, we would recycle and upcycle just because that's what we did. You, you weren't going to throw away something. You were going to hand down that pair of pants to the pair of trousers. Sorry, I must say that pants in Jamaica meet. Mean trousers, not underwear. <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, good. So, you know, you'd pass down those things. You'd sew them up to fix them because it was one out of necessity. But also we just weren't, a, 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 you know, these are cultures that waste. Like, you know, the kind of excess and waste is definitely a kind of global Northwestern thing because we, there was just, there wasn't these high manufacturing um, products and this high consumerism that allowed people to waste in the way that we now see in, in countries in, in all, all over the world where you could just waste because you're thinking you can go to the shop and buy something that's plastic again. Mm. So it is, it's a, it's a big irony. And I think during the Green and Black project that I did with um, Jasmine Ketibo of Foley, I think it's from the very beginning, it's the first thing we realized we had to change the way how the conversation was had. It's not that uh, black and minority ethnic people do not engage with the environment. They probably don't engage with the environmental movement and their reasons for that, right? And then the other reason too, I think, is that, like I said, we don't see through the same lens. We often come in from a different lens. I mean, just last night I saw a tweet, which I think really sums up a lot of kind of indigenous people, black people, Asian people, Poor people, too, working class people said, you know, the reason why I got into the environmental movement and climate change and climate justice wasn't because of protecting the environment, which is very important. It's because Western powers came into my country and exploited, extracted, killed and left with all the oil, left with all the resources. And no one says anything about it. I think a lot of us come into the environmental movement from that point of view. Mm. Right. I think we come from that angle and it doesn't make it any less important. In fact, it probably makes it even more important to that person because it's an issue of their heart, right? It's an issue that directly affects them and their family. Whereas, you know, when, when the environmental movement was about polar bears in the Arctic, that just was not going to connect with a person who was thinking about 
how not to get exploited, how not to have to move off of their land because some big multinational oil company wants to uh, mm. drill here. You know, so I think that's the other thing. We, we have been probably different conversations and different entry points. And I think now we're doing a little bit better in a, and I, every time I say this word movement, I am putting quotations there because we know what it's like when things are all clicked up. But I think now there's this more, we're having a lot more conversations about decolonizing um, the environmental conversation. It's happening now. And the West is looking to developing countries to see what's happening there because it never stopped. And I mean, I cannot stress this enough. Sustainability efforts, uh, environmentally friendly efforts have never stopped in these countries, just as they haven't stopped in the UK or in America. Um, they just they never stopped. I don't think they stopped anywhere in the world. You know, there was always a group of people continuing that. It's really interesting what you say about how, you know, actually it's Western countries that have caused these issues in the, um, you know, developing countries. You hear people say, oh, well, you know, the UK does this, but why don't you tell India to stop using so many, you know, stop throwing trash into the river using plastic bags? It's like, well, have you lived their life and seen what we've done to them? I mean, I think a lot of it is, like I said, we can't absolve ourselves from action and kind of moving forward now. But a lot of these behaviors that country, developing countries have, and, and for me, I can speak about you know countries that were kind of part of the British Empire because I, saw, I study more. So yes, countries like India, um, Jamaica, Trinidad, countries like that, a lot of what we do is learned. It's learned. It was learned from a colonial period. And what happened is, Sadly, we, we, a lot of us are stuck in the respectability politics of that age, of that era. And of, okay, so the irrespectability as well. But, you know, these, these are countries that were underdeveloped. So you have a country, you know, you have a state like India that produced, that basically gave England the thing it's known for, mm. right? England is known for Tea. uh, teas and, you know, drinking tea. And, uh, exactly. A country like, and, and the Caribbean is, gave England the other part of its tea drinking habit, the sugar, right? The cane sugar, mm. right? And so these are countries that were, that, that created the things that kind of the, the great British empire is known for and, and, and as British people we love and enjoy. But these countries were underdeveloped in the fact that, c- come on, you can't have a country, a place as big as India and, you know, they're extracting and exploiting, but then there's no, you know, there's there's no sanitation system that's set up to, to, to manage that. It, it, it's a direct issue of underdevelopment and kind of exploitation that, that in India do live like that. And there is a, a trash problem and there is a kind of a sanitation problem. It, it's, it's a result of uh, underdevelopment, you know. And, and so, yes, it's been 70 years for India. It's been, you know, I think they got independence in 1940 something. Um, 47, it might have been, I'm not sure, which is way before, yeah, I think it's 47. And so they, you know, they were independent in 47, whereas most of the Caribbean, you know, Jamaica and Trinidad were the first two independents in 1962. So this is not even kind of a, these are young independent nations and are a hundred years old. You know, Jamaica just hit 50 years. I think we just hit 60 years now. So these are young countries and to kind of, uh, think about a modern world, get yourself into the modern world while at the same time retroactively trying to address some of the issues from before. It's hard and harrowing, and I don't think anything is actually going to get fixed. Um, well, 
I mean, things get fixed, but then new problems arise. And so you're kind of always running, you know, you, you're chasing your tail, you're running, the, the finish line is moving every single minute. Mm. And so, yeah, so there are these problems in these countries. Now our government should be doing as much as they can, and we know they are not. You know, like I said, there's, there's, we criticize, I'm equal opportunity to criticize. I will criticize every government everywhere for not doing what they should be doing to protect people and environment. But I also understand that there, it's a result of a kind of hundreds of years of, of exploitation. Hmm. And so it's hard, it's hard, and it's hard to change behaviours as well. Um, we were talking briefly about the Green and Black Project in Bristol, where you live. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's a really cool idea. Yeah, so Jasmine Ketibola Foley and I were both volunteers at Ujima Radio, a community radio station here in Bristol. And I think we, they clearly were kind of watching us at the time to see that we were interested in you know, the type of things, because we had our own individual radio shows. And so I think through that, they recognized we both had an interest in this type of thing, talking about these type of things and researching these type of topics. And so we were the first two, we were, we are the pilot group. We're like the guinea pig group of the Green and Black Project, which is now the Black and Green Project. <laughs> so I need oh. to remember, yeah, I need to remember to say Black Is that green. because of copyright from the chocolate? Well, not exactly. No, not, they haven't contacted us at all. But also I think we thought that one, um, we want to highlight the Black part mm. and also, uh, the, co- the, the chocolate is no longer fair trade, so we actually don't even want to be mixed up with them anymore. <laughs> Good shout. Okay, fair uh, yeah, I, think, uh, I think that was the more reason we're like, oh, we don't want people to think about us in, when they're thinking of that no longer ethical chocolate, you know? <laughs> I did not even know that. <laughs> yeah, someone told us actually when we, while we were discussing it. Um, Isn't that crazy, just on a little side note, that things are getting less... Yeah. fair trade and less sustainable like what how that doesn't make sense that's I like know. famous for being the fair trade chocolate i know i think that one of the big you know one of the big chocolate companies bought them and so you can can imagine that when, when something goes from small to kind of huge you know mass mm. production it all changes and so yeah um mm. so the project we were and it's so you know it seems like it's happened yesterday but i think this was 2017 that we in conjunction with the university of bristol's cabot institute and university of bristol's policy bristol um like and bristol green capital partnership and ujima radio so came together to have this kind of pilot project just to see what would happen and it came as a response to the 2015 green capital year so in 2015, Bristol was the European green capital yeah, of the year. And so it meant that there were a lot of things happening around the city. And what what the directors of Ojima Radio um, recognized at the time is that these events were not inclusive. You know, and this is a big word, diversity. These are the two big words, right? Diversity and inclusion. And these events just were not. And they were for a plethora of reasons. Some happened to be where they put the events, you know, where, where, where you host an event can often speak to who's going to come. And so it had to do with things like where the events were hosted, who was on, who were the speakers, the kind of craft workers who were featured, the topics discussed as well. You know, all of these different things, the kind of things that we we have spoken about and we'll talk about in this conversation, the kind of 
socio-political aspects that decide who goes where, who moves around a city, who goes to what events, who feels comfortable in what um, places, in what in what buildings and you know what parts of the city. And so the Green and Black Project was an an answer to that in a way, or a way or a way to say, look, um, the same thing can be done with these so-called hard-to-reach communities, so-called hard-to-reach communities. Look, we're going to do it. We're going to show you it can be done. And I think we definitely did that in terms of starting a conversation and getting some of the things that we are saying in terms of how we speak about it out there, right? And having people think in different ways. And so Jazz and I had a good run, you know, we, and, and I like to say that we are, we are the bridge. We were the bridge. We were like the conduit between community and corporates. And when I say corporate, I mean the environmental movement, uh, the governance of the city, so the city council, um, the third sector, so volunteer organizations, and also kind of like, you know, environmental organizations that, you know, that are not businesses as such. And so we were kind of, uh, I like to think of it as we were this kind of go-between. We were the bridge that would translate the messages both ways, right? Because it's all about a back and forth. It's never about one way. And I think we need to stop this, this thing that, Oh, black people, Asian people do not engage with nature. No, 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 no. It's, it's, we're not listening. We're not giving space to those voices. Mm. And so it was definitely for us about a back and forth, getting messages across both sides, having activities across both sides. The project ended and, you know, it, once it ended, we kind of never let it go. We never let go the name. We kind of always kept singing and speaking about it. We never did let it go because we knew that um, it was the type of thing that needed to be spoken about in a city like Bristol, which is, you know, Bristol is a big greenish city. It's a city where... Mm. Uh, and multicultural. Multicultural, greenish city of sanctuary, uh, you know, a hippie type place. Bristol is the place. Like, it's it's that type of city. And I mean, I absolutely love it for that reason because it's, it's heartfelt. It's people and community. And so it was the perfect place to do this kind of, of project. Um, and so... We never let it go and people never let it go. They never forgot us either. We kind of always spoke about it. The radio show continued, you know, we, with some breaks in it because, again, after a point, everything that we did was then on our own time, out of goodwill. And so the radio show continued and a lot of the smaller activities did continue. So I think last year I ran, between last year and the year before, um, I ran quite a few nature writing trips with young people, with children, teenagers, um, first, just they were just kind of like nature outings. We did photography and stuff. But as I got more into my writer's residency, they be, they turned into like nature and store nature writing and storytelling outings, and those were just magnificent. So, so you know that is apart from the kind of more political aspects. This was the kind of part that was most fulfilling to me because it was the community stuff, you know, and it was the children and it was the writing and it was being outdoors. It's all the things I really really love. Yeah. You know, you it's did it for you, didn't you? I mean, honestly, give me children, give me writing, give me outdoors and give me something about Jamaica and I'm perfect. I'm happy. That's what my nature writing trips were. Those those nature storytelling trips, I would tell kind of like um, old nature stories or nature based stories from Jamaica and West Africa. And after a while, I started telling the, the British stories, the kind of English stories that I learned along the route of my writer's residency. I learned from different people. I started learning a lot of the folklore and started telling back those stories. Because you don't have to just write about Jamaican just because you are a Jamaican or you grew up in Jamaica. Yeah. Like, we can all kind of, we're all connected to all nature, right? Absolutely. I mean, the thing that 
I keep saying too is that a nature lover in Jamaica, they're going to come to England and love the nature here too. And you might, you know, the person in Jamaica might not believe it because the first thing we think about is gray sky compared to the sparkling blue sky. But actually, in the nuance and stuff, there's so many things that kind of I can draw parallels on, you know. Uh, and and I mean, I, I really say it. I think if you love nature anywhere, you go anywhere in the world and you will find the beauty and the solace and, and the appreciation for it. And so, yes, so I was really excited to learn the folklore from it, especially the Forest of Dean. I love the Forest of Dean. It's like my favorite place ever in England. And learning the folklore of the Forest of Dean, being able to tell the, those stories. And then, as an aside, this was not Green and Black Project, but I also did a bit of storytelling in schools and um, in primary schools here. And through that storytelling, I learned stories from some of the children who were in those classes. I would tell a Jamaican story and somebody would put their hand up and want to tell me a story from their country. So in that way, I kind of learned some of the folklore. And again, these children weren't even thinking that it's nature folklore, but it's nature based. These things happen in the woods. Or So I learned stories from Poland, Lithuania. And now I have like this repertoire of, of nature based stories. And it's fabulous. I mean, I love it. The culture is the thing for me. Culture and environment are the two things for me. And I will, you know. I'm just like on cloud nine if I can bring them together. And that's, that's what I've been able to do with, with, with my art, I suppose. I think it's um, definitely was a great idea to have you as one of the writers in residence because, well, I just think you obviously, you loved it and you brought a really interesting kind of side to it. Do you feel like, you know, your Green and Black project or Black and Green project and your writers in residence your residency at Forestry, Forestry England and everything else you've done or every, even things that you're seeing, do you feel like they're having an impact and that there are kind of cultural changes around the environment and nature? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's hard to know. Like, the reason I wanted to talk to you in a way was that I feel like... I spend a lot of time on Instagram following like eco bloggers and I speak to lots of people for this podcast. And then I realise they're all like white, middle class women mm-hmm. or or men. And I was like, oh, my God, this conversation is just going between one group of people. Mm-hmm. It should be like everyone should be involved in this. And like I feel like that's partly on me and the choices I've, you know, subconsciously made. I don't mm-hmm. know. But do you feel like there are kind of differences and that it's kind of improving culturally? Yeah, I mean, definitely small scale and in Bristol and and probably because Bristol is comparatively a smaller community in that we are closer, right? You know, this is what I say about the kind of community aspect. People speak to each other more. So I think in a city like this for Bristol, I think the people who work in the environmental movement or work in environmental jobs now might consider, okay, who I'm, I have a panel, who's on my panel, um, I'm doing this community project, which community am I going into? Can I get a community organization to be that conduit between me and the community? Because I think a lot of organizations that say they're doing community projects, the problem is they have no in to the community. They have no one from the community working on the project. And so people are kind of like, Psh, yeah, just another imposition, right? This is another extraction. You just come in here to extract information and, you know, things from us. So I think in that sense, people have thought about it. And I get, you know, we get a lot of messages. Oh, we're trying to do this. Um, can you give us some advice on that? So we know that there is space for more people like us. Right? Me and Jazz know that there is much more space because we cannot handle the requests. We cannot handle them. 
especially when that's amazing yeah we can't handle it and so you're you're right it is amazing because we still years later still get requests you know i just got one two days ago still getting requests from people organizations in bristol and i think now because my residency has given me a bit more of a, a wider reach outside of bristol as well and so you know there's an organization in oxford who I've been speaking to, you know, over the past few months because they are big starting their own green and black type project in Oxford. So amazing. Exactly. And so those are the type of things that we're like, yes, you know, um, Dr. Sean Sobers here in Bristol, big, big Rastaman photographer. But he tweeted us last week and said, look, I've I've started going to my allotment because of the green and black project, because of the things I heard you guys spoke about speak about it reminded me of my connection to nature because this is a, a virgin from Barbados you know comes lives in England now works at the university again the things that happen we move from where we were having this natural connection and then we almost forget we forget and mm. so he you know and I think those are the things that we like yes so community members are taking their time and getting themselves back involved if they weren't or starting or or shouting about it because you know the visibility is another thing and people might have been doing things for years and we just didn't know and then on the other end um the organizations the corporates are looking and asking and for sure for sure the message has spread out more for sure you know because um the head of the green party knows about she's no longer um the head but she knew she knows about the project because she sat on a panel with Jasmine and I before. And so she would have taken the, a lot of what we've said. And, and you know, I wouldn't have said it about every politician, but I would about her because I think she really, really, really stands by the things that she says. And so she would have internalized a lot of what Jasmine and I had said too. So there is there there are things happening. But again, Jasmine and I's impact would have been very small compared to the next set of Black and Green ambassadors who are coming up. And it's absolutely exciting for them. Because Jazz and I were the pilots. So we were just kind of testing the waters, seeing what was happening out there. And I think we surpassed what we thought we would do. But actually, the project, as the Black and Green project, has now been funded for another three years. Three ambassadors every year, that's nine more people. That's nine. And if Jazz and I had the impact that we had, I, I mean, I am just elated for what nine more youngsters are going to do. Mm, for sure. So if somebody is listening and is like, you know, wants to start to make a change, start to, what can we personally do? Like, what can I do or what can somebody else do to, to start to make a difference? Like, I can't join the Green and Black Ambassadors, but what should I take responsibility for, do you think, or, or anybody that's listening to try and make sure that that climate conversation and that nature conversation is inclusive? Uh first thing I would always say is read, read indigenous voices, read voices from the global south, read working class voices, poor people, read what they are saying on climate change, um, on sustainability, on the environment and on the politics of environmental movement. I think it's important to read and groups are popping up everywhere now. So Harriet, I can definitely hook you up with other people who you might want to interview, but they're groups and you can find um, there's now a kind of on Instagram, I think I follow now a like woman of color eco group. There are quite a few of these coming up now. Um, on Instagram, you can find like Black in Nature, uh, BAME in Nature, BAME Outdoors. You have quite a few of these accounts and people now. It just takes a few clicks to find them and to read. 
to read the mm. journals, read the um, academic papers too, but also read the newspaper articles of people um, who are working in these sectors. So okay. the first thing is, is probably to read. The second thing is to, if you are in an organization that does work, that is trying to work in these areas, it's, you always need um, someone from the community, which can sometimes be hard because you might get the gatekeeper, but actually the gatekeeper is, is better than someone who's outside of the gate. Right? It's, it's, it's better than someone who isn't even on the compound. So I think it's, that's one important part too, is always try to get people from whichever community you want to impact to work on the project. It's usually, um, I usually say think co-production, think co-produce, think we're co-producing with the community. So I think those are the two main things, honestly, get people from communities into your organizations and conversations and then read the ideas of, of people, right? Because I think a lot of times, so like I said, Jazz and I get a lot of these requests mm. and half the time the things that people are asking us and the things they want to find out if they could read or if they knew who to read, it would make a difference. Um, and I usually send out some, you know, a group, a set of articles. I usually send my websites because I have a kind of a, a lot of resources about specifically about the Green and Black Project. And I send other places and I say start here because a lot of the questions you're asking me, they've been answered many times. So I think it's just a bit of effort sometimes. Mm. And to not be shy because the thing is, a lot of us, we want to talk because we don't get the chance to talk. So we don't get the chance to put our voices on podcasts like this or we, we don't get asked very often. Mm. So, you know, often if you ask and you and, and you see and you're very truthful, like, look, yeah. I don't have these voices. I don't know the issues that affect you. I would love to learn more and to put these up. People would be quite often happy to do it. Mm. It's about not being afraid to ask, right? Yes, I think that's a big thing. People think, you know, don't approach uh, and, and I think uh, the social media presence sometimes does that because when you're on social media you, and we talk about these environmental issues, quite often they are the negative things. They're talking about the exploitation and stuff. So people might think we don't want to be approached, but actually I think most people who I know in the kind of environmental and green movement who are from uh, Black or Asian or, you know, who are mixed race or whatever, they want to speak. We, we look at all these platforms and we love them and we think, I wish I could say what I wanted to say on it. Mm. You know, we want to speak even just for the fact to have something in our portfolio, just to be, even to build our own portfolio as a nature or uh, environmental uh, climate mm. campaigner. We want to have a platform even just to have something under our belt to when we apply somewhere or when we want to do something to say, look, I've spoken on this and this and that. So in in a way, it's about, oh, it's, it's for... Um, the organizations and the podcasts and the TV shows and all of that to have their guests as well, but also think about it as opening a way for somebody to establish themselves in within the movement, you know? Mm. I think social media has, I do talk about social media quite a lot, but I feel like it has a lot to answer for because there's all these, you know, Instagram influencers who say they're all about this eco lifestyle and they're always usually very rich mm -hmm. white people mm -hmm. who live in massive houses mm -hmm. who clearly have a lot of money and it, there's a huge like social divide because like mm -hmm. even I, I I couldn't I mean I can't aspire to have a life of half of the people I've seen on Instagram because it's just I don't have the money I don't have the lifestyle mm -hmm. and so yeah we just kept it's, there's all these kind of separations it's, right. it's kind of weird exactly and I suppose, you know, there's a space for those influencers as well. 
Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of take um, a, an optimistic look at these things and say, right now, being eco-friendly is a fad and it might die down for a lot of people. But let's, you know, I'm optimistic enough to say that maybe one out of 10 is going to stick with it for the rest of their life mm. after finding it through an influencer or something, you know, so I think that's space for them. <laughs> but we also have to give space to other people too, who do not live their eco life that way, because that's the thing. It's because it's a different experience and a different expression of it. We quite often miss it. You know, um, one of the things that's kind of big on, on Instagram or, or certain sections of Instagram is black women taking pictures with flowers and trees and leaves. And I mean, it's absolutely beautiful, but it's not a thing that we think of as eco art, is it? We don't necessarily think of it as eco art unless someone says this is eco art and it deserves to be looked at in, you know, until someone kind of puts a philosophy behind it, we don't necessarily see it that way. So I think a lot of what people, organizations, um, people who have the power, they need just as with anything that has to deal with inequality. It's to let go some of that. It's to use that power to drag somebody up. Not drag them up, to pull somebody up, right? It's to say, look, I'm not going to speak now. I'm going to, my my chance to speak, I am giving it to this person. Um, my chance to show a film at this document, this panel or something, is going to be a documentary on this set of indigenous people and their problem. I think, and I'm, I, I mean, I'm I'm not saying this as kind of an, uh, an anecdote, a nice thing. I mean, People honestly need to do it. People who have the power honestly need to do it. This includes myself. Right now, I'm at a point where something's coming to me. I can say, I'm giving this job to this organization who is coming up and has, doesn't have the clout that Green and Black has and doesn't have the clout that Zakia McKenzie has as writing residents of Forestry, England. So everyone needs to do it. Mm. Once you get a little, you know, and I know we are worried about, oh, we got this little bit of power, we got this little bit of clout, this little bit of fame, and now we're passing it on. Like, honestly, if someone else makes it and they can say, this person gave me the platform, that's more for you. That's more of the fame and the clout and the power or whatever. That's more for you because there's someone else ringing your name. So I think we need to be more kind, be more kind in how we deal with what we have. We have to be more kind, mm. we have to distribute more. And remember, this is a problem and, uh, well, it's a problem for everyone and also the world belongs to everyone. Yes. And through my residency, I think I wrote a lot of these. So my residency is, is you know, you think I'd be writing about kind of a lot about Jamaica, but apart from one piece, it's all about England. But in the one piece where I do write about kind of the universal experience, and I think it's actually perfect for what we say, I do say that. I say, look, this place belongs to all of us. Right. This is this is all of our place. And while there have been really, really deep dividing issues, this is and, and while BME and black and, and, and Asian and, you know, all the, the diverse communities speak about these issues. The thing is, speaking about them isn't guilting anybody about them. And actually, there is no room for guilt now because we have to save the world. We have to. We have to protect the world against climate change. So actually, there's no room for guilt, mm. right? So there's no room for anyone to feel guilty and, and withdraw. And in the same way, same for my community. There's no, there's no space now for anyone to say, well, you said I'm not a part of the movement, so I'm just going to stay in my corner. Like, actually, no. Climate change is killing us. 
you know, this pandemic here has, has exacerbated, has shown us the holes in our systems in environmental protections. And this pandemic has shown us that you cannot only focus on one section of the community, of the society, because we're all intertwined, right? While it's got, just like we've seen with the pandemic, while it's more likely to affect uh, poor and working class people and diverse people first and worse, you know, and that, that's up for discussion as well. That's not, I'm not saying that's a truism. I mean, for sure, we can say that poor people are more at risk. It's the same thing that we see with climate change. But because they are more at risk, doesn't mean it doesn't actually get to the top of the ladder at some point. Right? And so we kind of have to do away with the animosity, the fear, the thinking that this person is unapproachable. Like, honestly, just send a message. Send a message and see. Just ask. And and this goes both ways. I'm talking about people on both sides. Sometimes you just have to message that organization and say, look, I am this person. I recognize your organization does not have anyone that speaks on these issues. Would you be interested in some training? Or, you know, you just have to put yourself out there and try. And I think until both sides are doing that kind of thing, we will be stuck in these points where we we don't think we see enough. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Um. So, all right, well, we've been talking for ages. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, <laughs> probably should wrap it up, shouldn't we? Um, uh, in terms of, obviously, you said that the Forestry um, Commission, Forestry England, sorry, um, residency ended earlier this year. So what's next? What are you doing? Because you always seem to be doing millions of things. <laughs> I know, it's bad. <laughs> I can never, never stick with one thing. Um, so I am still, I'm still writing very writing for different things now so since then I, i've been kind of reviewing nature writing for bbc wildlife magazine and i've been in kind of other kind of very niche writing so small woods magazine in england is a magazine for people who own the woods mm. and i've written for them. i know people who have like a little patch of woods is usually with the foresters and woodworkers who would read that type of thing um, but you can probably see me in a few more things coming up soon and anthologies. I'm going to get published. Hey, I'm going to be in a couple anthologies coming up nice. and really exciting because there are anthologies on British nature. And so here I am um, writing about British. So I'm a real British nature writer now, I guess. Uh, so I have those anthologies coming up and I might even have my own book coming up sometime Ooh. in the near future that might happen but actually i'm doing a phd i need to finish my phd first okay so and that's the writing that is going to come first but yeah i am still writing and um still talking still doing a few panels um even now you know zoom panels and stuff and talking and writing yes we're doing everything over the internet isn't it it is I, I, like doing I, all these zoom conversations yeah i'm like do i dress up <laughs> I know. What do I do? I need to make sure my background is, you know, neutral and all of that. It's different, but um, you know, I suppose it's gonna be the way of the world soon. Yeah. Um, I just wanted quickly before you go. Obviously, um, we've been talking a lot about nature and and stuff like that. Um, how kind of eco conscious are you at home and stuff? Are you kind of an avid recycler and? always um yeah, kind of yeah trying to lower your waist and stuff yeah definitely and again this is this is from before i knew it was a thing you know this is this is my yeah. mother this is the influence of my mother 
who would compost at home in Jamaica. You know, you'd have a little compost, things like recycling. It was just a thing that we did. You had a plastic bottle. You never threw it, threw it out. It was You just found a reason to do something with it, you know. Mm. And so I am here and, and, you know, possibly more than my family who's here too because they call me names like Miss Kumbaya and Earth Mother. And, you know, they make fun of me in that way, <laughs> you know. Um, but last year I switched to doing things like buying, um, you know, my dishwashing liquid and the body soap that we use in bulk mm. so I don't have to buy a small plastic bottle every single time I have a little compost at home as well I did have two chickens I don't have them anymore I really wish I had my chickens. I really wish I had my girls because we'd have fresh eggs every day so we don't have we don't have them anymore um we're growing stuff uh, we came here and saw a lot of things growing. My friends have been really great with keeping this garden going. And yeah, I mean, I think, again, I don't recognize it because it's just normal to me. But when, when friends and family come over, they definitely notice. They notice that, oh my God, look at Z with the wooden toothbrushes. She's so proud that she can put her toothbrush in the compost bin when she's finished. And And I mean, again, I recognize that these things take money, mm. right? They take money. And again, I couldn't do it until last year. Last year was when I was like, okay, I can start making some of these decisions to not buy one small bottle of, of dishwashing liquid every single uh, two weeks. Now I can buy a big one and it will serve me for six months mm. or something, you know? So, I, I mean, I, like everybody else, I think I could probably do better, you know? I, the, the thing I've been thinking about this week is running my washing machine and thinking I'm, I'm, I can't be running the washing machine if it's not full. That's that's after watching Dairy Girls, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, even, even something like that is like where we get our references yeah. from. I watch Dairy Girls and the mom in Dairy Girls, again, it's because of probably finances, will not r- run her washing machine until it's full. Mm. Right. But that's an eco-friendly thing that she does without thinking it's eco-friendly because for her, it's it's economic, yeah. it's financial. Yeah. So again, we have to be looking at all the different ways that people are a part of, of environmental friendliness that we don't really consider. And, and so, yeah, so things like that, I get, I pick up these references everywhere and consider how <laughs> I can um, implement them in my life and do better about, you know, doing my little bit. Nice. Yeah, even like the veg garden thing. I know so many people who move to the UK and they're like, oh my God, you've got huge gardens and you don't have a veg patch. What a waste of money. Like, why why are you going to the supermarket? Exactly. You know, so many things like that. Yeah. And it's to the point now that my son, he, everything, he saves everything and it's it's annoying because every single thing he will say, don't throw that out, mommy. I can play with it. I can do something. And at some point I'm like, no, honey, this needs to go in. The re- this is rubbish now. It goes in the recycle bin, you know. But just even that, that's a good thing. And we need to be doing that with our family members and our friends and stuff like that. Just one small, if we can get them to do one small thing, one small. Thing. Yeah, and who cares if they think you're like a crazy hippie? That's yeah, exactly. Everything. And you know, that's a funny thing because my my family's like that. But when there's a question, who do they call? Mm, Me. Yeah. You know. Same. Just the, the the new name Miss Kumbaya it was yesterday. My sister asked me a question, but she prefaced it with "Since you're Miss Kumbaya, you know." And I'm like, "Oh, I don't mind. You're gonna call me that, but you know who to call when you want to solve this problem or you want to do better about your own um, uh, recycling." And you know, I don't mind. Call me all the names, but you guys know who will take the banter. But you know who you know where to go. You know what I stand for. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really fun and enlightening. Thank you as well. It's been a lovely way to start the day. 
Ah, oh, you're welcome. Weirdly, I'm going to go to bed now. Um, I know. <laughs> Uh, if somebody wants to check out your work, maybe read some of the stuff that you've written, um, where's the best place to go? I have a website now. So it's just my name, Zakia.me. If you can't remember my full name, which is, they both go to the same place. So ZakiaMcKenzie.com or Zakia.me. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Zakia Media. So just my name and the word media. And um, yeah, Forestry England's website, you'll see my whole forest collection. And you'll also see uh, Tiffany Francis Baker's collection, who was the other writer in residence. And they're both great pieces of work. So go read our stuff, both of us. <laughs> that was such a great conversation. And I know we could have gone on and could have gone deeper into environmental racism and what's happening to people across the world for another episode maybe but in terms of the environmental movement I think Zakia made some excellent points so a huge thanks to her for sharing her story and her thoughts with us so if you want to change your eco outlook and you want your environmental community to be more inclusive you probably need to make some changes we probably all do so here are some of the points that we covered Follow bloggers on Twitter, Instagram, whatever platform you choose that are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. One specific tweet that Zakia mentioned was from Aisha Sadika, who is Aisha Sadika 12 on Twitter, who I'm following now. And I've just put a link to that page on the podcast description as well. Um, Zakia also sent me a few others. Those are also in the podcast description and you can find more on my Instagram page as well change your idea of what eco-friendly is it's not always about what you see and what people shout about on social media or wherever else your neighbor might have been upcycling and composting for years but you just don't know about it everybody has their kind of own things that they work on and lots of communities have been as we spoke about have been practicing environmental ways of working forever um listen broaden your community and listen to people you usually wouldn't do some research and seek out podcasts and films about the environment that are led by people of color but not just talking about them but actually led by them presented by them and hosted by them read head to Zakia's website and this was a really big one from her is to read and I know she's a writer and, and so this one's really important but I do think it's important and this is you know even blogs and Instagram blog that's still reading and that's still learning so um, head to zakiamckenzie.com that's also on the podcast episode uh, the description of the podcast go and see some of the stuff that she recommends on her website but also go and read her writing on the Forestry England website there's some beautiful stuff on there don't be afraid to ask I think sometimes there is a little bit of fear and anxiety about posting about something or about talking about something you're you're out of your comfort zone and it's not something you usually talk about you know there's no shame in asking and actually it's better than staying silent it can be scary but we do need to communicate and learn from each other and honestly this is something I I find difficult as well but we need to communicate and learn from each other Zakia also said, offer your platform. Could you do this? Could you do, I mean, a small one might be an Instagram takeover from somebody that's different to yourself. Could you offer a guest slot on your podcast? Also, do you have an opportunity to speak at a panel or on somebody else's podcast? Could you offer somebody else that platform instead? And lastly, recognizing your privilege, whether that's white privilege or otherwise, and just using it in a positive way and not just using it to benefit yourself. 
Thank you so much for listening to Wanna Be Greener and huge thanks to Zaki and Mackenzie for such a fun yet informative and just a great chat. Um, if you want to get in touch, whether you've got questions or feedback or you want to continue the conversation from today's episode, you can do at instagram.com slash wannabe.greener or you can tweet me at harriet.robbo or email me wannabegreener at gmail.com. Um, also, please do send me any bloggers or writers or, or any relevant content that you recommend. I would love to receive it. Now, don't forget to check out the other podcasts we've got in the archive, including Natural Beauty, Eco-Anxiety and Co-Housing. The next two episodes to be released focus on how to recycle properly and how to support a sustainable fashion industry with Ethically Kate. So just before I go, I wanted to recommend another podcast for you. It's called Breaking Green Ceilings with Sapna Mulkey. And it does just the kind of thing that we've been talking about today. It amplifies voices from underrepresented communities who are committed to environmental sustainability. There's some awesome episodes in there. So if you haven't yet, go and subscribe to Breaking Green Ceilings and follow it on Instagram as well. That's it from me. You've been listening to Wanna Be Greener. I'll see you next time. Bye.